I will be out, I will be gone with our students to North Carolina for winter retreat. And so before, uh, so much stuff up here. Before, I feel, con- I feel confined, like I'm in a box of microphones. Um, but I'm going to break something, so we're just going to leave it here. All right, so I decided rather than jump back into John's gospel, uh, the next section is a long section, and so it requires more than... Uh, more than a, a couple of weeks, I decided to take the first part of this year, these first two Sundays of the year, uh, and and talk about our church uh, identity, uh, what who who we are. And the, and the nice thing about being a church that believes the Bible is that we don't have to get very creative when it comes to coming up with our identity and mission. It comes out of the Bible. Um, and so, in fact, all the things are our vision, the values, the things that are hanging on the wall, all of these things find their origin uh, in the scriptures uh, and the way that we apply them. Uh, what I want to focus on over the next two Sundays is what it means uh, when, when we say that we are or that we aim to be a grace-centered community. Uh, when we aim to be a grace-centered community, I want to take that phrase, grace-centered and I want to talk about what that means. Why is that so important? Why is that so integral to who we are as Christians, but also who we are as a church? And the reason it's so important is, is this. Uh, to, borrow, to borrow from John MacArthur, a pastor out in California, we live in a two-religion world. Uh, there, at the end of the day, regardless of all of the various names uh, that that the religions in the world go by, at the end of the day, there are only two. The first is the religion of works, salvation by works, right? Where you do whatever is necessary to either please God, become one with God, or maybe you follow certain religious prescriptions so that you can become one with the universe, or even if you don't believe in God at all. If you, if you would call yourself an atheist or an agnostic, you still follow some kind of guidelines. You aim to follow some kind of principles so that you can arrive at what you would call a good life. And all of those things, whether they acknowledge God or not, or whatever they call God, all of those things would fall under the umbrella of salvation by works, a religion of works. The other religion in the world is what we would consider biblical Christianity. And it is a salvation by grace. It is a religion of grace. And what we mean when we say what we mean when we say that is that all of the Christian life, from beginning to end, finds its foundational root in the grace of God. And over the next two weeks, we're going to tease that out. All right. So this first week, when we look at Ephesians chapter two, we're going to look. We're going to talk about grace that saves. And then next week, we're going to talk about how that is applied in our own lives. And so we're going to, and that, that sermon is going to be called Grace That Works, right? Uh, and the reason that it's important that we break that out and we talk about it is because there's tension. There's a lot of tension between, okay, if I am saved by grace, then how does that mean I am to live? How is that grace played out in my life? And I don't know about you, this is the way that I used to think. When I first became a Christian... My understanding of Christianity was I pray the prayer, Jesus forgives my sin, and it breaks me even. And now it's up to me to keep my nose clean. 
so that I don't lose the salvation that Jesus has purchased. Have you ever heard that or have you ever thought that or believed that? We're going to find out today from Ephesians 2 that that is actually not what the Bible teaches, right? And so we're going to take two weeks and we're going to talk about what it means for us to be grace-centered. Uh, and even, it's even helpful as we look, as we stand at the foot of another new year, right? As we look forward and we think about all that this year could hold, all that we may do, all that might happen, it's helpful that we reorient ourselves to what is foundational to being a Christian, okay? And so with that said, let me, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 1 through 10. If you're reading along in the Red Pew Bible, it would be page 976. To give you a bit of context, Paul has spent ch- chapter 1 of Ephesians is probably one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible. Paul just unloads, right? Um, he unloads about all of the blessings that God has given believers in Jesus. Uh, and then he prays that, those, that, that this Ephesian church believers, but even that we, would have our eyes open to understand those things. And as part of that prayer, um, he helps open our eyes to the realities uh, of of God's grace at work in our lives. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God." Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, would you pour out your blessing on the hearing of your word, on the reading of your word, and now the preaching of your word, God, would you make it effective? Would you do that good work which you have appointed your word to do? Would you cause it to pierce our hearts, bring us to a, a knowledge of our sin, and bring us, bring us to a knowledge of your, your grace uh, the grace that saves us out of our sin. Father, and would, we, would we know it, and would you help us to think and live this gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, okay, so where in the Bible 
where in the Bible would you find the phrase, God helps those who help themselves? Nowhere. Good, good. All right. Yeah, that actually comes to us from the ancient Greeks, right? Ancient Greece gave us that proverb, God helps those who helps themselves. What the Bible says and what Ephesians 2 says is God helps those who can't help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. And so it would be helpful, uh, beneficial right off the bat for us to define what we mean when we say grace. I mean, it's in the sign uh, on, the, on the front of the church. Uh, it's all over this passage. What do we mean by grace? Um, which is, it, it can be somewhat tricky to define. One common definition is God's unmerited favor, which sounds, now, you know, a lot, most of us are really, really smart, but just in case you're like me, you hear that and it kind of sounds like, you know, a Merriam-Webster definition, like God's unmerited favor, what does that even mean? Um, so we can apply it like this, right? That here's what grace is. Grace is God lovingly, Doing for sinners what we cannot do for ourselves. Grace is God lovingly doing for sinners what we cannot do for ourselves. And so if we're going to be grace-centered, if we want to be grace-centered, if we aim to be grace-centered... That's the, that's the definition of grace. It may not be the best one. It may not be the only one. But I think it's one that fits this passage well and what it means to be grace-centered. Now, in order to be grace-centered, you need to know two things. And the first one is this. And, and Paul, this passage, these first, uh, these first ten verses are actually broken into two. You could break them into two sections. And the first one is, uh, is Paul. And here's, what, and here's what he's saying. You have to know, in order to be grace-centered, you have to know who you were and where you've come from. Now, Paul is talking to professing believers, and so he's talking in the past tense. But that may not be you. And so while Paul is saying you were dead, for some of you, you may need to hear you are dead. That may be a present tense for you. But at any rate, in order to be grace-centered, you first have to know who you were, who you are, and where you've come from, or where, you're, or where you are. What does Paul say? How does he define life apart from the grace of God? He says, you were dead. Not wounded, not sick, not, not needing just a little spiritual pick-me-up, or not needing just some good advice. You're dead. You are dead. Not uh, some some religions. A religion of works would say that uh, that really you're just on the surface of the ocean and the, the water's stormy and you're drowning. And so what you really need is somebody just to throw you the life preserver. But that's not what Paul says. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says actually no. You're on the bottom of the ocean. No amount of CPR is going to help. You need life. Not advice. You're dead. And you're dead because of your trespasses and sins. Trespass. uh, You know what it means to trespass, right? To knowingly cross a boundary. To cross the line. Sin literally means to 
fall short of the mark. Uh, some of you are archers, uh, and so when an archer would shoot an arrow and he would miss the target, the person down by the target would yell out, Sin, you missed the mark. And so what Paul is saying is that we are dead because we have intentionally trespassed against the law of God and we have fallen short of the law of God. We have missed the mark. And so this is a very comprehensive way of talking about the fact that we are rebels and failures. And because we are rebels and failures, we are dead. Uh, in which you once walked, verse 2, the, the verb there is, is literally walked around. So you can get the picture there, right, that our former life or our life apart from Christ is one in which you're walking around in sin. It's a way of life. It's your common way of life in which you once walked. Why? Why did we walk that way? What led us to be that way? Well, Paul mentions uh, three different factors, three different things really that enslave us. And the first is that uh, we do that following the course of this world. Uh, The course of this world. And so the idea there is a path or a walkway. and And the course of this world is away from God. It is hostile to God. So that means that we... Uh, Rather than value and cherish the things of God, we value and cherish the things of this world. Um, There was a, when I was in college, there was a coffee shop, and this was before coffee shops were cool, um, or I guess they've always been cool, but before there was a whole lot of them. Um, And so there there was a coffee shop on the corner just up from my apartment, and my roommate and I would drive by there, and, and he would make fun of the people who were outside the coffee shop. Um, he would always joke about them being the nonconformists, right? This was the kind of coffee shop where all the nonconformists hung out. See, now if you drink coffee at a coffee shop, you're just conforming to the mainstream. But back in that day, it was primarily the nonconformists. And you know what the nonconformist is, right? Somebody who says, I'm not going to be like everybody else. I'm going to stand outside the mainstream. But here's what was funny about those nonconformists. They all looked like each other. Like they all dressed the same. Their hair was the same style. They thought the same things. And they talked about the same. They had the same hobbies, right? So while they may not have been conforming to the mainstream, they were certainly conforming to a stream. One of the things that has made our country great uh, and was because early on we had very much, it was the pioneer spirit, Right? We were the trailblazers. We were the adventurers. We were taming the wilderness. We were, uh, we were, we were going. With a Star Trek reference, we were going boldly where no one had gone before. Sorry, um, and that's a good thing when it comes to making a country. But what Paul is saying is here is that there's no such thing as trailblazers or nonconformists. That apart from Christ, you are enslaved to this path. You are on the path of the world. And while you think you may be a trailblazer or you think you may not be conforming to the mainstream, what happens in reality is that you are, in fact, on the broad way that leads to destruction. That there is, uh, there is a path, and we are on that path apart from Christ. It is a path of hostility to God. Who charts this course for us? 
beginning at verse 2. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Uh, that's, a, that's kind of an odd phrase. Paul has already made a reference to the spiritual forces, the dark spiritual forces at work in the world. And so when, he's, when he says the prince or the, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, he's talking about no one else, nobody, nobody other than Satan, God's great enemy, right? Um, it's not really fashionable to say that there are dark forces out there that we can't see. You know, in our modern scientific world, we didn't believe in that sort of thing. But that didn't seem to stop Paul or the rest of the scriptures from talking about the fact that there are evil forces and there is a leader and his name is Satan. And he took the form of a serpent so that he could deceive humanity and lead them in rebellion against God. And so not only are we enslaved to the course of the world, but we're also following the prince of the power of the air Uh, He is the ruler of this spirit of hostility that's at work in the sons of disobedience. That word disobedience, uh, apatheia. You hear our word apathy in there. So think in your mind, when I say the word apathy, what do you think of? What comes to mind, right? Obstinate, uncaring, stubborn, Paul is saying that because of the course that we are on, apart from God's intervention, we are uncaring and apathetic and unbelieving and disobedient to the things of God. We don't care. Uh, That's not not the life that we want. So the world, the devil, and then in verse 3, our flesh. Paul says, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind. And so Paul is saying that apart from Christ, our greatest desire is to please ourselves, is to satisfy ourselves, is to follow the lust of our flesh, the desires of our flesh, right? Uh, The motto, this came out of the 70s, right? The motto, if it feels good, do it, right? That's the motto of our old life, of life apart from Christ. But you have to be careful because this doesn't just apply to someone whose sin is so public and obvious, right? This doesn't just apply uh, to the drug addict. It also applies to the person whose desire to work hard becomes so consuming that she becomes a workaholic. Her desires have gotten out of control, and now she lives to satisfy that desire. It, it applies to the person who is so incredibly insecure that their desire is just to have other people like them, and they... They go overboard and they please other people. It's, it's not bad to do things for people. That's a, a good desire. But apart from God's intervention, it becomes all-controlling so that you become crippled with insecurity. Or it applies to the person who is so driven, so driven by a desire to be right that it turns into pride. And he ends up abusing, crushing other people to get his way. So I want you to see that when it talk, when Paul talks about, when Paul says we were this way, he's talking about all of us, not just the prostitute, 
not just the drug addict, but all of us. All of us, apart from God's intervention, follow the desires of our flesh. They get out of control and they enslave us. And so the final word then is that we are by nature, by birth, by nature children of wrath. That at birth, because Romans 5, we are born in Adam, we are under the sentence of condemnation. That wrath rests on every person by nature. Wrath. God's just response to sin. God's holiness and His goodness, when it comes up against sin and evil, responds in wrath. That is, that is the sentence that we stand under. So let's summarize this first section. If we're really going to know where we are, where, who we were, where we've come from, our condition is spiritual death. Uh, We are dead because of our own sin, our own trespasses, because we've gone against the law of God. we failed to do the law of God. And we're just following the path of the world. The world, we're following our own desires, enslaved to our own desires. If it feels good, do it. And behind all of that is the great enemy of God himself, the devil, who is at work in our disobedience. And because of all of that, we are children of wrath. It's not a very promising way to start the new year. What in the world can be done to rescue? What can remedy such a hopeless situation? Verse 4. But God. Two most beautiful words in the Bible. But God. What about God? He is rich in mercy. Not only, uh, Paul has no problem holding the just wrath of God and the rich mercy of God side by side. They're both there. They are both his character. And God is rich in mercy. He has an abundance of mercy. He is wealthy in mercy. It overflows from him out of the great love with which he loves us. So, so God's love is not this kind of impersonal emotion just floating out there in the universe waiting to absorb you, waiting for you to be a part of it, whatever that may mean. It's not a new agey type thing. God's love is personal. It is for certain people. It is real and it is active. Just like your love is personal and real and active. God's love is a pursuing, active, working love. And the way that it works is it saves. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Did you catch that? Not just that we were dead... We were dead in our own trespasses. It's our fault. When we were dead, that's when we are made alive. So, I hear people say this often. I can't come to church. 
I can't, I can't come to know Jesus. There's, just, there's some things in my life that I have to take care of first. There are things in my life that I've got to deal with before I can even come to God. That's not what this says. In Romans 5, Paul says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. While we are still sinners... While we are dead, that's when God's love makes alive. There's no, no part of it is, well, I need to tidy it up first. I need, I need to get my act together first. Then God can save me. Then God will forgive me. Then God... No, no, no. That's a salvation by works. That's you tidying up before you can try to accept the grace of God. And that is not what the grace of God is. The grace of God, well, we sang about it in our first hymn. Come, ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity joined with power. He is able, he is able, he is willing, doubt no more. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. Don't don't think that you have to somehow... Make yourself right before you can come and accept the grace of God. Don't let conscience make you linger. Don't let fitness, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. While we were still sinners, while we were dead in our rebellion, God made us alive with Christ. We did not make ourselves alive. We did not bring life to our lifeless spirits. This is what Jesus is talking about in John 3. We talked about the new birth a few months back. When Jesus looks at the very righteous Pharisee Nicodemus, the lawkeeper himself, and he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Your lawkeeping will not save you. you must, in order for you to get into the kingdom, you must have new life. From above. That's what God gives us in Christ. And Paul gets so excited that he has to actually interject. He says, By grace you have been saved. Just in case there's any confusion, by grace you have been saved. That's our past. Made us alive together. What about our future? Verse 6 He raised us up with Him. We are given. We are, we are raised up uh, to heaven, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so what, what Paul is saying is that if God did this for Jesus and you are in Jesus, these same things will happen to you. He rose Jesus from the dead. You will be brought back from the dead. You'll be given new life. You will go to heaven. You will actually sit on thrones with Jesus. Those are all of the things that God provides for those who are in Christ. So here's what I want to point out. God not only begins the process of salvation, but he finishes it. Philippians 1.6. Paul tells the Philippian church, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. The God who saves in the past is the same God who will save in the future. There is none of this, 
Jesus breaks me even, and it's up to me to keep my nose clean. No, if you are in Christ, your salvation is a finished work from beginning to end. And that's good news. So the summary of the whole matter, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Ah, faith. Now we get to our responsibility. My part. God makes the offer by grace, but I have to receive it by faith. I have to believe. I have to trust. Right? That's what faith is. Faith is my response in trust, my response of trust in God's gracious gift. That's what faith is. Our confession uh, says that faith is receiving and resting upon Christ alone. So faith is certainly an act of receiving and resting and trusting in what God has done. So this is it. This is where man comes in. You've got to believe. Except where does that faith come from? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now, that this, in verse 9, doesn't simply just refer to faith. It refers to the whole package. It refers to the whole process of salvation of which faith is a part. Even faith is given to you. That's what God is doing in the new heart. When we are given a new life, when we are born from above, we are made able to respond to God's gracious gift. So yes, you have to respond in belief. Where does that belief come from? Grace. So even your faith is a work, is a gift of God. God gives dead sinners living hearts so they are able to believe in Him. That is grace that saves. And that's what it means to be grace-centered. Or at least that is the foundation of what it means to be grace-centered. That from first to last, God's grace is what saves us and makes us fit for heaven. Verse 10. Or verse 9, excuse me. Not a result of works. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Because you know that you would. Because I know that I would. And that's how, that's how we begin to apply this idea of grace. That if grace is what sets the tone between God and me, look, if there were, if there were any part of it for which I was responsible that I had a hand in, then you know that I would boast about it. And you know that I would use it as leverage. Right? Leverage is when you... Um, I just drew a blank. Um, le- leverage is when, you, is when you try to hold on to something, basically to use it in your favor. Right? And so if any part of this salvation process is my doing, I can always look at God and say, I've done what you told me to do. I'm not going any farther. In fact, I'm pretty good at doing what you told me to do. Right? I can, I can kind of hold on to my cherished righteousness, my sham righteousness. Right? And not only do I do that with God, not only, if, not only would that would boasting enter into my relationship with God, the vertical, 
but would also enter, enter into my horizontal relationship with you. It gives me a right to be a snob. And listen, I'm from Homewood, Alabama. I know how to be a snob. We were raised that way, all right? It comes naturally for me to look down on other people. And if any part of my salvation is my work, if somehow I earned my standing with God, then that means I'm always in comparison with you. Is he better than me or is he worse than me? What can I do to be better than him? And I would lord, and I would, whatever, whatever sham righteousness I have, right, the fact that I'm from, the fact that I'm from Homewood, uh, went to a great school, played in a great band, um, went to the University of Alabama, you can see where that would resonate really well with a, with a born snob, right? Let's, take, let, let's just take a closer look at that record. What did I have to do with any of that? Did I move myself to Homewood? Did I pay those property taxes out of my own pocket? I didn't. Did I? Did I pay the tuition at the University of Alabama? I didn't even get. I didn't even get a scholarship. All right, my my ACT was like a measly twenty-five or something like that. Right, that doesn't get you anything. In fact, my tuition was paid by the state because. I have diagnosed attention deficit disorder. How's that for grace? My disability is what got my college paid for. And then my parents foot the bill for the living expenses. So I could be a snob until you take a really close look at my record. And then I got nothing to stand on. And so at the end of the day, my base attitude towards God is, thanks, is thankfulness and gratitude and my base attitude towards you should be humility. That's how grace affects the vertical and the horizontal dimensions. That's, how, that's, that's why it's so important that we are grace-centered. Because when we're not, boasting enters in, and we, and we twist our relationship with God, and we twist our relationship with other people. Paul goes on. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul begins this section by talking about our walk in sin and trespasses. And then he finishes it by saying that now, because of grace, we have a different walk. And this is what we're going to talk about next week. We've talked about grace in the past that saves us. Grace in the future that secures us and of which we can rest on. But what about the present? Is it up to me in the present? And Paul says, in the present, we, are, we do good works because of God's grace at work in us. And we're going to tease this out more next week. But um, just so we know, we finish there, that in the present... We actually we get to live grace, and we're going to talk about what that means next week. Do you know your sin? Do you know where you come from? Do you know who you are or who you were? And are you tired of it? Are you tired of pretending you're better than you really are? Or are you tired of being so ashamed 
of who you are. God beckons you to come out of the darkness and come into the light and repent and believe in Jesus alone. Are you, do you know your sin and are you tired of walking in it and are you ready for something different? Listen to these words, these, this hymn written in the early 1800s. Come boldly to the throne of grace, you wretched sinners come, and lay your load at Jesus' feet. And plead what he has done. How can I come, some soul may say. I'm lame and cannot walk. My guilt and sin have stopped my mouth. I sigh but dare not talk. Come boldly to the throne of grace, though lost and blind and lame. Jesus is the sinner's friend and ever was the same. Poor, bankrupt souls who feel and know the hell of sin within. Come boldly to the throne of grace. The Lord will take you in. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so grateful for the grace that saves, for the grace that makes us new, and for the grace that gives us new life. Would you give us grace Give us grace to to fully understand and apply grace in our own hearts, in our relationships with others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask the elders to come forward.